You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My unusually well-informed guest today is Dr. Egbert Edelbrook. Egbert is the CEO and founder of Spaceborn United. When humanity permanently settles beyond Earth, there will be a first generation of us born in space. Today, Egbert and I are going to discuss his work exploring the challenges of human reproduction in Earth orbit and beyond. Egbert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. For me as well. So let's talk a little bit about the conditions in space. What makes human reproduction in space such a challenge? Yes, many things. Uh, one, well, it's always about radiation and gravity. Um, and it's, it's important to understand that reproduction, it's not just one, one thing. It consists of different stages. So the conception stage, the early embryo development stage is completely different from the, the months to follow. And of course, the delivery part is, is a different stage as well. So we, we look at the different challenges um, from the perspectives of, of stages of reproduction. And um, um, for example, uh, conception, uh, vulnerable small cells developing into embryos. And radiation is, uh, is really important, uh, but also uh, gravity and actually we need to learn what gravity is, is, is necessary for healthy embryo development. We, we, all we know is earth, earth gravity and microgravity. And microgravity isn't, isn't helping. So it must be uh, close to earth gravity, probably. Right. And what is Spaceborn, your company, Spaceborn United's role? What are you, what are, you uh, are, are you investigating human reproduction in space? What, what does your company do? Yeah, we actually do, we focus on three, uh, three areas of work. Uh, first of all, we, we research the conditions indeed for uh, human reproduction in space. And obviously we, we build on top of all the, the, the large uh, research that has already been done by many agencies and research institutions. So that's the first step, doing research. And the second step is we, we translate the outcomes of that research into a missions program, um, a separate mission for each stage of reproduction. So the name Space Born is obviously a hint for our long-term mission, childbirth in space. Um, and, uh, but for the next few years, we are focusing on the start of reproduction. So conception and, and uh, early embryo development. But that's only the second thing of we do, what we do. The third thing is also important. We translate the research outcomes into uh, biomedical devices required for the missions in the missions program. And how did your interest in this subject develop? Yeah, that's, that's well, to some people, maybe um, a funny story. Um, some, uh, how many years ago is that? Uh, some 10 years ago, I decided to, to be a, a donor, a sperm donor for IVF clinics. Um, and in that role, I learned more about assisted reproductive technology, such as IVF. And I started, I, I always had a passion for space exploration. And that's where the, the both of them combined. And I started wondering more and more if 
this technology could also be re-engineered to work in space because humanity is going to need something like this. Yeah. Uh, or at least they should explore the options of assisted reproduction uh, in space. That's where it, where it started. Well, and that is, um, as I explored the subject, I, it, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I didn't think of this being a subject, but then I, I've known of our ambitions to settle the moon and, and Mars or, or O'Neill cylinders in space. And, and, you know, people have talked about it being a one-way trip, but if it's a one-way trip, probably you're going to want to have a family. So it is something that seems to me inevitable that will come up over time. Um, you, you raised the, the topic of IVF. Could you say what that means and, and what, what, what that technology does? Yeah, so it's part of assisted reproductive technology. And, and on Earth, IVF clinics usually help uh, uh, couples that have challenges of, of becoming pregnant in a natural way. Um, so there are artificial assisted technologies that, that can harvest the female cells, the oocytes, uh, look which of them are the most, have the best chance for reproduction. And they can, can do the same for, for uh, sperm cells. And, and in that, that is one of those examples of, of technologies and, and, and the fertilization uh, of those cells can happen outside the natural womb. So uh, that's an example of, of IVF technology. Let's return to some of the challenges in space. You, you, um, you began with focus on gravity, which does seem like a very fundamental thing, you know, uh, a 3D printer, the way one is designed on Earth, will fail in orbit because it'll just, you know, it, it, it can't, there's nothing to stick to. There's nothing holding things in place. Yeah. One can imagine similar challenges with life growing in space. Um, but the other, the other challenge seems to be radiation and, and there's multiple kinds of radiation. What concerns can we have about that? Uh, very big concerns in, in, in the outside the, the Earth atmosphere. We're not protected by the atmosphere. If you go further uh, on journeys to Mars, you're also outside of the Earth magnetosphere, even less protection. I mean, if you're going to the moon, that's also going to be an issue. So those are big, big issues. And, and there are multiple approaches uh, being explored by hundreds of, of research institutions to, to deal with it. And, and one is the obvious approach to, to uh, uh, look at, at shielding, um, making sure that, that the radi radiation doesn't get to the human tissues, but some of that radiation will just pass through uh, space stations, etc. So um, real protection would require a couple of, like, um, I think it's, it's 15 feet of, of water to get the, 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 the heavy iron uh, um, well, to, to get that real protection that, that we have on Earth, the same level. Um, so there are also other approaches, even uh, more exotic approaches where we, not we, but where uh, humanity, in fact, is, is looking at um, even genome editing technologies that we can uh, learn from evolution from other species that are better protected and we might borrow their genes and build them into the human genome. But that's really exotic and that, well, there's a lot of ethics involved. And that's going to take imagine, a, couple yes. of, a couple of decades, but I predict that's going to happen eventually for sure. 
Um, and a lot of approaches in between, even, even uh, lifestyle or diet habits, food uh, uh, interventions can, can, uh, can enhance the radiation resistance of our cells. Uh, and, and even, uh, well, even human um, hibernation technologies are, are being explored in a really serious way, even by, by agencies like ESA, um, to, to slow down the cell metabolism during long journeys. So there's a lot, a lot of research in, in, in tackling this, and, and uh, we will use those solutions uh, for our missions as well. That's intriguing. I, I hadn't thought of the idea. I, I had, obviously, anybody who watches science fiction is familiar with the concept of, of you know, sleeping the time away between stars or planets. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't thought of it as a, a mitigation measure for radiation damage. So I guess the principle there would be that the, the Xerox machine isn't running quite so fast. And so it doesn't exactly. reproduce the errors that would be encountered uh, while you're in transit. That's one of the key uh, reasons indeed. Yeah. So let, let's talk um, a little more uh, basic and, and, and b there's male fertility, female fertility. So how, how is male fertility affected by, uh, by space travel? I mean, they've, they've certainly examined astronauts very carefully. They don't necessarily advertise that they're asking about sexual health, but I'm sure it's on the list. Is there any uh, experimental evidence that male reproductive health is affected by time and space? It is negatively um, so, and, and, and radiation is also quite a serious issue. So there are even uh, approaches uh, to, to address this that, um, well, I know, I know a little bit more about female scenarios uh, because if women travel to, to Mars, but also the same thing will be, uh, will be true for men. The, the, the reproductive organs, they, they are being compromised by, by all that radiation. Um, and, and even uh, in a way that they might not be able to reproduce anymore. So that might imply approaches that we, um, that we store human embryos and small volumes obviously are much easier to protect. Um, so it's, it's, it's even a scenario where reproductive organs will be removed on earth, cryogenically preserved in small volumes and then well protected travel with them to Mars and then place them back. But that's quite... <laughs> yeah, that you might have a hard yeah. time getting volunteers for that mission. <laughs> um, one thing that I'm curious about um, is the ovulation cycle, in, in my limited understanding, is impacted by the lunar cycle. What happens when that is disrupted? Do we know anything that, that comes from that? Um, I personally don't know what, what is going on with that cycle and, and how, is, how that is disturbed. We are, as I mentioned, we are focusing more on assisted reproductive technology. So we are... Um, uh, facilitating embryo development outside of the human body as right. one of the areas of solutions for these kinds of uh, phenomena. And so do you imagine a future where Earth's exports would include 
embryos as opposed to the the people on Mars being able to reproduce on their own? Is that is that sort of what you're thinking would happen? I think it's one of the um, it, it, it's a feasible scenario. We expect it, there are a lot of solutions, it seems, um, in that area. So I, I would say uh, yes. So um, again, because you're you're more focused on the technology, maybe this isn't a good question either. But just to complete the set, if you will, the, the gestation in space. Um, I know that you, your your company has looked into the concept of an artificial womb, but do we know uh, anything, even with animal experiments or something along those lines of what gestation in space is like, what carrying a baby in space is like? Yeah, the, 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 the biggest bottleneck uh, is, is uh, gravity. So uh, developing embryos need a certain level of gravity for healthy development. Already after five days, it's 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 crucial when the the, the the young embryo starts splitting into different kind of tissues, bone tissue, brain tissue, muscle tissue, etc. So also gestation inside uh, an artificial womb, it would at least need to be in an environment where there is artificial gravity to some level. Um, some sort of centrifuge or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to be one of the, the, the big issues. Uh, I mean, radiation can be addressed in different ways, the, the protection, um, but, but gravity, um, and that, that's what we are, that's the key scientific value actually of, of what we are doing in, in our current focus. Um, we, we can study uh, affordably close to Earth, low Earth orbit, what level of gravity is required for healthy embryo development. Maybe the Mars gravity level is enough. Mm -hmm. Most experts have serious doubts about it, but we can find out. We can learn this inside our uh, space incubator. Right. Um, so just to complete the set then, uh, we have birth in space. Um, do you know how important gravity is to that? process yes yes uh, i know uh, i've spoken to several uh, experts in obstetrics and um, they expect it's not going to be necessary at all it can happen in microgravity it, uh, it's, it's about also on earth uh, about 90 percent of of uh, the, the requirement is is from the muscles in the body and, and gravity yes it, it helps a little bit for the last 10 percent but it's we could easily do it out and, and right. uh, to, to, to stay on the safe side, we uh, will uh, facilitate childbirth in space only with women that have given birth before. Uh, so the, the second or the third time is uh, usually a lot smoother than the first time. So okay. then gravity is even less of a factor. But I think one of the challenges there is somebody who is a permanent inhabitant in space could have their musculature wither, right? So that would be one of the mm. challenges because it is a muscular activity <laughs> uh, giving yes. birth. Um, that's completely true. Um, I mean, maybe it's good to, to get that uh, clarified. Our childbirth uh, mission that we are aiming for, uh, it's only 24, maybe 36 hour mission. It's not a mission where we have uh, a woman 
uh, in in space for nine months. It's mm-hmm. just the delivery. And and that's a that's a, one of a series of experiments you're contemplating. Do you want to talk a little bit more about? the the experiments you you would that spaceborne is thinking of of uh taking yeah sure so um the first uh, the first mission that we are uh, preparing is about uh, conception and, and early embryo development in low earth orbit and that's like a five to six day mission uh an unmanned mission so it's, it's ivf in space inside a small um embryo incubator uh, inside a recoverable biosatellite. So uh, we allow the conception to, to, to start in low Earth orbit, and then we allow the embryos to, uh, to grow for five days just before they start splitting into different types of tissues. And we, uh, we want this to happen in, in normal Earth-like gravity. Uh, yes, artificial, obviously. Um, and then we examine, we, of course, we will first have validation missions using animal sa- cell samples, yeah. testing the prototypes, etc. But eventually we should uh, one day move to uh, uh, doing this with, with human embryos and to pause their development after five days, we use um, cryogenic technology, the same that is applied in, in IVF clinics uh, to, to so to speak, to freeze them, to pause their development, and also to protect them for all the vibrations during the recovery phase, uh, the re-entry uh, through the atmosphere. And then inside um, IVF labs, they will be examined for all the health criteria. Uh, so that's, that's our first focus for the next couple of years. Uh, we, we call the mission ARTIS. Assisted Reproductive Technology in Space, artists. Artists, okay. And um, meanwhile, we are also working on the childbirth mission. It's hard to say when that will happen because uh, that also de- uh, depends on different developments. We, we need to, we, we need a really comfortable flight. So low G profile spacecraft and uh, the space tour- tourism industry uh, seems to, to provide more and more options uh, for such flights. So we're going to use those developments. And and that might mean that in about 15 to 20 years, we can do this mission. Mm -hmm. But still, that depends on on several, a lot of research that needs to be uh, carried out. And also uh, comfortable spacecraft for vulnerable people, obviously. And meanwhile, we are, um, um, we are looking at different different experiments. We we are closely monitoring the human uh, artificial womb. Actually, in in the Netherlands, there's a group that got a large uh, grant to to re-engineer the the animal version into a human version, but not with the intent to to make it work in space. That's going to be another step. But uh, as we, as I mentioned, we see a lot of opportunities for such technology to uh, to become a multiplanetary species and, and protect uh, a growing embryo better than the human body would, would be able to. Right. Um, 
I, I think you'll forgive the term cross pollination, <laughs> right? That where uh, that you, what you learn on Earth, you can learn in space, and vice versa. They can yeah. be applied in both yeah. both locations. Exactly. Um, so some of the experiments uh, do have ethical implications, but then also sending people to live for generations on another planet has its own ethical dimensions, right? Um, what will happen to their children? Will the children thrive? Will they be safe? Will they, will, will, will they mutate somehow? Will they continue to be like humans on earth? And so I can see the, the motivation for doing these kinds of experiments. Is there, is there an, uh, a body or are there, I, I imagine one of the problems is there's probably a thousand government bodies and, and agencies that are interested in this. Where would you go to get clearance to, to undertake these missions? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's uh, absolutely true. There's a lot of ethics involved, uh, usually translated in, 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 in uh, legal uh, regulations. In, and, and there are big differences uh, for different regions. You can imagine, for example, uh, Germany, they have very strict rules. They would never want to be uh, associated with uh, stuff that that's happened in, in the Second World War. So for that reason, they, they have very strict rules for anything that could be labeled as an experiment with, with, with uh, human cells or embryos or people. Um, but there are other regions that are uh, more open to, to these required innovations. Um, and, and there is indeed hundreds of different bodies and, and there is collaboration. Uh, I think there should be, should be more collaboration, uh, but there is hope because I mean, the, these life science issues, they're ethically delicate and it's, it's very difficult, for example, for the agencies, they, they work with taxpayer money. So it's very difficult for them to address these life science uh, challenges. But they're open to it. They're open. They're open about it. They explicitly encourage uh, focused biotech companies like ours to address these topics. Because, well, if you look at NASA, for example, also ESA, well, I think it's ninety to ninety-five percent focused on engineering, building solid, uh, advanced uh, spacecrafts, and, and, and also a little bit habitats. But the life science issues, I mean, it's 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 marginal. And, and well, there are going to be uh, people inside these spacecrafts and, and space habitats and stations and O'Neill cylinders. So that area needs a lot of um, a, a lot of focus and effort, uh, and and it's growing because it, it's 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 uh, essential. We can't send people to Mars if we didn't address uh, many of those uh, issues. Yeah, I mean, the alternative to thinking these things through, and I mean, we can, we can think and do research on Earth all we want. Nothing quite beats an experiment in, under the conditions we're contemplating. But if we send a thousand people to Mars, there's going to be a baby born, right? Like it's going to happen, uh, whether it's sanctioned or not. Um, and so the more we know in advance, I think it is definitely valuable. Um, you touched on the subject of I don't know I don't know if you use the term exactly, but gene manipulation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we can agree that we we ad we adapted to the conditions of Earth. If we're going to thrive on Mars, we may need to uh, 
either um, select people who have the, have the characteristics we learn are beneficial on Mars or to create those beneficial characteristics. And that gets into another fraught area as well, right? You're basically, you're, you're changing the nature of humanity at that point. Do you know if people are, are contemplating that, what kind of experiments they have in mind? Oh, uh, I can recommend uh, reading uh, or looking at the work of uh, Dr. Chris, Christopher Mason. Um, he's a renowned expert in, in, in genome editing uh, in a space context, in a space exploration context. And he's actually drafted like a roadmap for the next 500 years. Um, really interesting and, 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 uh, and, and backed by, by solid science. Uh, and I know a little bit about his work and, and he's by far not the only one looking at these options. We're also monitoring what's going on. And we expect and we predict that uh, genome editing will be one of the key areas of, of change for humanity in, in every way, including space exploration. And disease eradication and everything oh, else. Oh, for Long sure. Gravity. And that's where it's yeah. going to start. That's, that's, I mean, apart from my own personal ethical uh, hesitations and, and the, the legitimate uh, ethical concerns that many other people have, I mean, we're, are, are we like playing for God or any other holy institution or anything? Um, legitimate concerns. But if you look at history, um, well, actually, you, 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 it's, it's going to be really hard to find a technology that eventually have, has not been used. Right. Um, maybe by some group or country who, who cannot afford a lot of eth ethics, uh, but they see an advantage and therefore they will use it. And um, genome editing has so many options and, and eradicating disease, as you mentioned, that's going to be accepted the first. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as, as we expect, that's going to be ethically the most comfortable transition. But if you open the box of Pandora, you cannot close it anymore. And there will yeah. be, well, there will be other benefits that, that are going to be exploited. So um, one of the things that you've touched on uh, in some of, uh, some of your written material online uh, is remote medical care. So mm -hmm. one of the challenges, uh, I mean, in your case, you're focused on the reproductive journey, but this would apply to anything. If you break an arm in orbit and you're alone, um, you need medical care. And so you would have to do it yourself and you'd have to have, you, it, you would benefit from having people on earth walk you through it or having equipment with you that can play the role of doctor what do you see happening in that field when it comes to reproductive health? Yes, the, the, we are actually, um, what we do re requires remote controlling of, of a biological process. Um, the, the embryos that are developing inside our incubator, inside our life support system, um, is going to be controlled remotely. We, we are uh, including uh, uh, micro cameras for, for uh, transferring imagery data to, to the ground station um, and, and, and that feed, use that feedback to adjust the, the climate controls or the, the, the humidity or things like this. Um, so we are looking at, at those 
options, certainly, for what we do. Um, uh, and I see other developments, but uh, I'm sorry, I cannot, at this moment, I, I don't have a lot of other areas I Fair can enough. tell about. Um, Elon Musk has made the point many times, and he's not the first. I mean, Stephen Hawking made the same point that we need to go beyond the cradle of Earth to other locations. Um, how, how, how much importance do you attach to this idea of having backups for, for planet Earth, for the human race? Yeah, it, it's, um, uh, it's crucial for the, the, the survival of, of the human species on the long term. Um, there are quite a few risks, uh, especially accumulated for, uh, well, real threats to, to uh, human life on Earth. I like one of those quotes from Mich Michio Kaku, the, the, the professor, and he says, why are there no dinosaurs on Earth? Because they didn't have a space program. <laughs> and, and yeah, basically, he's got a point. I mean, we can calculate statistically uh, the, the, the odds that, that bigger comets will, will, asteroids will hit the Earth uh, one day, and that's going to cause a lot of problems for potentially thousands of years yeah there are 23 super volcanoes behind schedule waiting to explode causing ice ages for thousand years or more there's but the, the most urgent threats are uh, well climate change and, and um, artificial intelligence in about 20 to 30 years could also uh, go go wrong so i fully agree with Anyone who is uh, well, like Elon Musk, I think you 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 should focus on on both a backup plan. We need a backup plan on the really really long term. I mean, the sun is going to uh, go through its life cycle and, and become a red giant and swallow the earth. Um, and before it swallows the earth, all the water is going to be vaporized. So in in a billion years, we we need to have moved already. Yes, but that's a long term. But looking at all the other risks, um, a few backup plans wouldn't would be a very good idea. Yeah, I find the arguments of of super volcanoes and and large uh, meteors or asteroids striking on the Earth, I find them pretty persuasive. I'm not as persuaded by the idea of AI, not because it isn't necessarily a threat if wielded incorrectly, but just that it would it would move to Mars too. Right, that it, we, you know, we're, no matter what happens, we're going to be part of one big in internet, and I can't see us being immune from that, or or from some some horrific war or something like that. I, but but from natural disasters, I think it's a, a an important mitigation strategy. I agree with you there. Um, yes, it's interesting to 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 well, uh, you're indirectly talking about potential great filters. Maybe the, 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 the human nature is, is just causing um, too much problems to become multiplanetary. We'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm more optimistic than that. I'm, I'm optimistic. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're around in a thousand years, we'll find out, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> one thing, one question I have, and I realize that, you know, neither one of us is a legal scholar, but it's still something that's interesting to think about. Um, 
someone born off the earth, what nationality would they be? And I'm sure that it hinges a little bit on what vessel they're on, uh, who their parents are, just like if like maritime law, there must be some way of figuring this out. But do we, what, what are your thoughts on this? When, when, a, chi- when a child is first born, would they na- naturally be a resident of a country on earth? Um, we we, we uh, uh, had experts look into this uh, because we find it, well, funny, interesting. Um, and uh, space law experts said this is uh, undecided. It, it's, it's not very difficult to, to make a decision about it, like the similar decisions that you described that are already used if, if you go on a boat outside of a country or in an airplane, obviously. So it's going to be one of those options. And I don't have an opinion on which one is best, but we, we, we found it intriguing and we, we have it, uh, it, it. It's not decided yet. So it would be funny if we could do our mission and it would still not have decided yet. And we <laughs> right. should have a, like a world citizen or, a, or maybe it's, it's going to require um, uh, the Air Force or Space Force to set some kind of alien uh, protocol uh, <laughs> to work. Just yeah. because it's, well, it's going to be the first, uh, first formal alien then maybe. Right. First immigrant to Earth. <laughs> Well, one way of addressing it, uh, and I know you've done some some work on this, is to come up with a new country in space, a new nationality in space. And the one effort that's underway is called Asgardia, which I don't believe is a reference to the Marvel movies, but rather to the original myths that the Marvel movies are in turn referring to. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what Asgardia is all about? Yes. I mean, there are, um, everybody knows those rich uh, billionaires that uh, like Elon Musk, Richard Branson, uh, Jeff Bezos, a few others, and, and they're all into building rockets and engineering, and they're doing great, great stuff. And there's this other very wealthy uh, person who also was is still very interested in space, uh, but he had a different ambition. Uh, he, his ambition uh, is to have the first space nation as you were referring to. And, and uh, the name of that uh, nation is, is indeed Asgardia. And they actually have the ambition to, to be recognized by the United Nations. Uh, so they take it really, really seriously. And they are, uh, they're uh, going through the steps that are required for that recognition. So you need to have uh, a constitution, you need to have a functioning, democratically chosen uh, parliament you need ministers you need well all things like this and they get a lot of them uh, figured out and operational uh, and they have uh, uh, congresses science and investment congresses and things like this and the funny thing is well funny um, the interesting thing is Besides this more like political ambition to, to be the first recognized nation, space nation, they also have a scientific vision and a scientific key goal of enabling the first childbirth in space. And that's uh, clearly, the first natural born Asgardian. 
Well, <laughs> yeah, in fact, well, maybe even uh, literally like this. Um, they didn't explicitly say naturally uh, born. Well, when I say natural born, I mean, I mean, not immigrating into the country yes, of Asgardia, yes, yes. as we all would now. I and, and, and I mean, a, a natural birth is what we are aiming for as well. So the, the, uh, that's a lot easier than, than waiting for the technology for artificial wombs to, to go into space. And, and so it's going to be natural anyway. But it's obvious that this is uh, where we have a very strong match. So um, I was honored to, to, to be on on their congress and, and present on stage about our work and then they invited me to to uh, become more intimate with them and, and, and um, they're now preparing to support the research that we do also as, uh, financial support um, i met a lot of interesting experts that are also joining uh, the work that we do uh, but so that's that's what asgardia is about and that's mm. how we have a match so you're you're sort of the off-world health organization. Um, well, sort of, at least right? the reproduction, the reproduction, reproduction yeah. component. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm tempted to say that uh, somebody needs to fill the vacuum, but um, bum. But um, Elon Musk is talking about putting a million people on Mars, and all he said really on the subject of how it would be run would be a bunch of plebiscites. Everybody would get to vote on everything. It would be an electronic democracy. But it seems like Asgardia has done a little more of a detailed thought on, on how things would work. But again, coming back to this idea of a vacuum, there's going to be multiple interests who would like to, you know, if Mars turns out to be revenue positive, then I'm sure people are going to want to claim that as part of you know, the United States is a likely um, uh, claimant. Um, and of course, this is the stuff of science fiction, right? I, I, I'm not a huge fan of The Expanse. I don't watch it. But basically, it's about Mars becoming uh, a colony that is revenue positive and Earth not letting it be free. I mean, that's sort of the, the undercurrent of the whole thing. And what Asgardia seems to be doing is trying to get in front of that before the conflict arises. So even though like it seems like a strange thing to be creating a country out of not even thin air, but no air, um, there is a purpose to it. It's worth thinking through in advance. In that way, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's a very um, wise exercise to, 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 to try to see, okay, well, um, what, what rules could be beneficial to humanity? Well, uh, what regulations do we need? Um, and, and they're looking ahead in a, in, in a healthy way, I believe. And, 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 and still, that's absolutely no guarantee that that's going to cover all the phenomena in, in, in human interaction that, that could happen. Um, uh, so in that way, I think it's, it's a very healthy exercise to do indeed. And, and by the way, they, they do have a territory. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of space law uh, detail, but you, you, you need if you want to be a country, you need a territory, and and it it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to uh, allow for uh, habit, habitation. So they have a satellite in orbit and that is declared legally as the territory of Asgardia. It's just your residents doesn't have don't have to live there on on the territory. Thank goodness. Which would be practically. <laughs> 
really challenging. Yeah. Yes. Um, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Egbert. Uh, my last question is, when do you think the first human will be born in space? I would say in uh, 15 years from now. 15 years. Okay. And I wouldn't be surprised if it will be sooner. Fascinating. Okay. Well, exciting time. So thank you so much for being on the show, Egbert. I appreciate it. Was it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Egbert Edelbrook. A link to Egbert's LinkedIn profile and his company Spaceborn United will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton. You can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 